welcome to our podcast Gold Talks. This is Nirali and we are here to bring to you words of wisdom from the artist and spiritual teacher EJ Gold. Today we are starting a new series titled Slime Wars. It covers a wide range of pivotal moments in 20th century history. This massive epic is a semi-autobiographical conspiracy-minded piece of science fiction populated by J Edgar Hoover Cold War spies, world-devouring slime molds, and otherworldly aliens. The book is narrated by the author E.J. Gold himself. Chapter One, First Mission. It was the dawning of the age of Aquarius, the summer of A.D. 1967, a long, hot, tense, and drawn-out season of the witch in L.A. Only one year before your year, A.D. 1968, that nasty, horrible summer of love that all us slime moles dreaded the first time it happened and hate going back to every time something like this happens again. When a bunch of enzyme-hungry aliens get loose in the, tw- in the Earth game and start abducting people at first by the tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands and now millions. Soon it'll be by the billions, and then us blue team and red team slime mold operators will have to stop our friendly combat deadness tracks and send in teams like mine to handle the situation, because great mother slime mold knows you humans can't. In A.D. 1967, Vietnam was dragging on wonderfully well. It looked as if it might just go on dreamily forever, and there were always plenty of exciting combat pictures fresh from the killing fields of Southeast Asia on the new TV that Lady Astroth and I had bought at Fedco a cooperative one-stop shopping center for federal employees such as myself, for our shared underground bunker beneath the Pentagon in Washington, District of Columbia, not far from where the KGB doppelgangers and the gray aliens had penetrated national defenses in your years AD 1962 and 1944, respectively. All that year, Lady Astoreth and I eagerly watched war footage every evening on the nightly news with Walter Cronkite and Cheddar David Huntley in New York, and David or Chet Brinkley in Washington. Or perhaps it was the other way around. And anyone else who aired the war news in color cast or black and white long into the evening. Lady Astoreth and I sat in the bedroom on her artichoke-topped four-poster bed, watching that glowing glass tit dancing with the dead, and we laughed with the chatter of fifty caliber M60 hip hefted, full-auto machine guns throwing tracers and armor-piercing incendiaries into the rice paddies where field workers did what great picking braceros were doing in California, but with the addition of that sparkling, enervating sense of surprise you get whenever a Cobra gunship with an enthusiastic crew that had never had an opportunity to shoot someone before happens to fly right over where you're waving hello with an AK-47. They got in the way of war, those peasants with their uncomplaining faces and their bent backs, their meek march to death, that silent majority who have always marched to their deaths with little or no resistance, just as us slime mold operatives who were trapped in the second shape-shifting war of your year B.C. 3798 old calendar, marched off quietly to the gas chamber located on the north side of the formerly wooded area, which had been cleared down to bare mud to make the camp in which we had been held and forced to work on labor gangs. Even when they gave us clumsily carved and sloppily painted and heavily chipped wooden soap bars, scrawled with last-minute messages of the dying, and we knew it wasn't going to be the refreshing delousing shower it had been touted up to be, we were quiet. We didn't make trouble. Why should we? 
Slime molds are just as impervious to gas as they are to liquids, solids, plasmas, ethers, and cathoths. We quietly allowed them to gas us all they wanted to, and we made no fuss. We lay down quietly and went to our graves quietly and rotted quietly for weeks and weeks and weeks, and then, of course, it was our turn to gas them. And that's exactly what we did, tit for tat. Hey, those are the rules of any game, aren't they? There have always been those who didn't want to make trouble, and there have always been self-appointed guardians of the civil peace, like Genghis Khan, Napoleon Bonaparte, Adolf Hitler, and Richard Milhouse Nixon, to keep slime molds and other free souls like us in our place. Lady Astoreth and I were delighted when the network censors decided to permit the airing of the day's body count from Vietnam, giving us that rough, raw footage that made the nightly news so amusing. Gosh, if we'd had live CNN coverage of the various backyard wars back in those days, I guess we'd have been glued to the screen forever. The greatest thing about the new electronic communications technology breakthroughs of the AD mid-1960s was that you got the images directly off the satellite in overseas microwave and cable transmissions, like when they sent colorcast video pictures live from the moon in AD 1969, although most households didn't yet have the color receivers to decode it in anything but black and white. Right smack dab in our own underground bunker below the Pentagon, even with nothing but a cheap rabbit ears antenna, we got perfect pictures in black and white. Perhaps a sign of one of the fundamental weaknesses of a large military organization like ours is the fact, verified by documents in my possession, that we were unable to get appropriations for either a color console or cable services down there in that underground bunker beneath the Pentagon until your year A.D. 1997. And that was under a special fund program, even though we needed the incoming data and media responses for our field operations evaluations, and the big brass knew it. Blood and Guts TV coverage of Vietnam was very different from those boring newsreels at your local movie theater because the theatrical releases had all been edited and butchered down to nothing by some pinko pussy peacenik strictly for its public consumption. The stuff we got on the nightly news was raw, real, and power-packed. You could see and feel combatants taking hits right on camera. You could hear every death rattle, every screaming casualty, every shrieking rocket slamming in, every mortar round flying down and bursting in a million antipersonnel fragments, showering the field with steel rain and blood. You humans wouldn't understand, and the reason you wouldn't understand is just exactly because you are only human. And because you're a human, you're subject to sickness and pain within a wide spectrum of hurt to which we're immune. And unlike any of us time-tripping slime molds and other immortal soldiers who play war games in the simulation you call Earth, when you die, you stay dead. A heck of a lot anybody who can die would know about being an amorphous, semi-gelatinous slime mold from the A.D. 37th century who could only imagine the soothing sleep that you short-lifers call death. The war news was one of those things that got me through the night along with the Barbara Birdfeather show, which I occasionally broadcast live with her around midnight out of the KPPC studios in Pasadena, like I did sometimes with Amanda Folger and Julie Russo and Rashad Field at KPFK-FM Pacifica Radio until sometime in the AD 21st century when I lost my broadcasting license for the last time charged with illegal use of thought on public broadcast. It was Barbara Birdfeather manipulating the slide pots on the mix board to bring down the night mantle and bring up the sun, 
who made the time flow begin so us slime mold operatives could neutralize that first alien thrust into Central Park on 2 July, your year, A.D. 1959, during a full daylight eclipse of the moon. But you could count the sentient beings who believed that sort of thing back then in A.D. 1959 on three hands. The best part of primetime programming for me and Lady Astoreth were those great Alpo dog meat commercials that ran between news clips. I imagine it's hard for you humans to understand the emotional effect that a wide-angle vision of a drooling dog guzzling up a huge, sloppy, heaping bowl full of chopped horse meat and pig meat parts can have on your average slime mold. And hey, I'm more than just your average slime mold, and I've got the pictures to prove it. But back in your year, A.D. 1967, that wonderful year of despair, just before that miserable summer of love came along and ruined everything, I had ordered the loosing of my latest secret weapon in the war of attrition, which begins my quest for world domination and control, the hippie. The hippie was originally intended as a social movement of confused spiritual seekers with delusions of universal peace, free love, the brotherhood of all human beings, and oneness with their planet, and indeed with the entire universe. I know. You've heard that old line so many times before, but it was an easy ideology to sell in those naive days. People were turned on, tuned in, and cut loose from the known universe. They were scared. There was a dangerous war on, and the Americans and Russians were, hopefully for our plans, about to blow everything to heck in spite of the end of the Cold War. When humans are even slightly uncertain of the future, and they happen to accidentally become aware of it by way of any shock from auto accident to acid trip, they'll grab any straw. And with the advent of the hippie, I'd handed hundreds of thousands of lost kids, potentially an enormous army against alien domination, or just a bunch of enzymes for some aliens to come along and harvest, a big multicolored striped candy cane to suck on, iced with a psychedelic experience, dipped deeply in the topping of bitter disappointment at the fouled-up empty shell of a used-up world that their own darn establishment parents had made for themselves to plunder, leaving a dry and empty hulk for their children and grandchildren to meekly inherit. Sure, the acid trip is dangerous to local life forms and introducing it into the culture by dumping it into the Los Angeles City Reservoir every Sunday morning at dawn from 12 June A.D. 1967, through the week of 15 November A.D. 1969, came dangerously close to violating the primary directive not to interfere with local life forms, but heck darn, I had three million yards of paisley goods, tens of thousands of imported bell-bottoms, and tons of fringed leather vests and high-heeled boots I had to get rid of or face another loft fire, and several of my insurance claims adjusters were already getting suspicious, and besides... I learned how to dose unsuspecting subjects with LSD in the U.S. Army at Fort Ord, California, near year A.D. 1962, which wasn't far from the classroom in which Dr. Lim- Timothy Leary, Department of Psychology at Harvard University, had fallen under the domination of Lady Astroth. By the second semester of his amateur acid experiments with LSD-25, obeying Lady Astoreth's post-hypno instructions, he and his entire Harvard staff left for upstate New York to carry out further experiments with Associates Ralph Metzner, Richard Alpert, and Slime Mold Armed Forces General Rachta, invoked into the personage of Reb Zalman Schachter, whose designated Slime Mold Military Occupation Specialty was MOS 909, a classified nomenclature about which I can only tell you that it somehow involves assisting any acid-fried, spiritually walking wounded drug casualties to jockey themselves back to consensus reality if they felt it was important to relate in the next few hours. 
Dr. Leary wanted to experiment in an environment free of government control, but, as I warned him back in your year 4792, they were never for a moment out of the eye of the original backers of mind-controlled drug experiments in America, the alien-dominated CIA, the influence of which he resented and the personnel of which he despised. I rather liked them myself. Most of my friends are and were company people, and every time-tripping slime-mold operative knows that company people are fun people. My cat Hamlet, a tricolored male Egyptian temple cat, was given to me by my friend IBM, which is what old Iron Bob Mayhew was called at the CIA HQ in Arlington. He was called lots of other things at the FOG headquarters, Foreign Operations Group, of which I was a part-time member just because there's always lots of interagency friction in Washington. listening to our podcast. Gold Talks is produced by Nishit Kajar and sponsored by Jukebox Mind. Voice of EJ Gold courtesy of gatewaybooksandtapes.com. For more information, visit idhhb.com. See you in the next episode. Until then, have a good one.